You're listening to the SHL CHRO Chat Podcast, where our Chief Human Resources Officer, Carrie Ellison, leads conversations with other HR experts who are driving innovation through wise talent decisions. So welcome to our next episode. I am Terry Ellison, the CHRO at SHL. And today I have a co-host, Luke Fisher, who is our founder of Mo. Um, And between the two of us, we thought we would like to extend the psychological contract type of conversation that was a result of the last podcast. So I'm really, really pleased and excited to um, have two extra guests with us today. Um, to help us think about that process and think about the organizations and the challenges we are in today with um, uh, that psychological contract and how do we engage and motivate our employees, especially after the the year that we've had. So today we have with us um, Watson Stewart, who is the Global Head of Talent Solutions at Standard Chartered Bank. Watson, do you want to give us a little bit of background on yourself? Sure thing, Terry. Thanks. Thanks for the introduction and thanks thanks for having me with you today. It's great. It's great to be here with you. Um, so as you say, I'm with Standard Chartered Bank at the moment and over the last, I've been there quite a number of years now, about nearly four years in total. And prior to that, I spent time in uh, healthcare and insurance and also spent quite a bit of time in food retail and sales. Um, the consistent pattern all throughout has been some form of change, some form of creating something from nothing, whether it's talent or organization development or digital technology that supports um, you know, HR transformation. Uh, so thanks for having me, Terry. It's, it's great to be here. Great, thanks, Watson. And change definitely is one of the inevitables as we've definitely shown over the last couple of years. Um, so the other person that I'd like to introduce us to is Ed, Ed Airy, who is our group um, um, employee experience director and he works at William Hill. Ed, do you wanna do a little intro? Happy to, yeah, thank you. And uh, just to echo Watson, very happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, so uh, Employee Experience Director at William Hill. Uh, Funnily enough, I celebrated my fifth anniversary uh, yesterday. Uh, Prior to to William Hill, I uh, worked in insurance for RSA and before then spent about 10 years as a management consultant uh, at Deloitte. So I'd like to think about quite a varied career. Um, Lots of interesting experiences. Main sort of theme throughout mine is... um, just the interest of working with different types of people uh, and just creating uh, solutions that really suit uh, what an organization needs at any one point in time. Great, thanks Ed. And I think the um, interesting conversation that our listeners will have is the four of us have already been talking about that interaction and that employee engagement piece. Um, So I'm gonna start off by uh, just getting Luke to just talk a little bit for a moment um, around and get us into the conversation. So part of what we were thinking about when we first talked was how and how is it now between the relationship between a company and and um, almost a workers type relationship and how different is that relationship today? I'm going to try and not keep using the word COVID but it is unfortunately for something that's been quite important to us over the last um, 12 to 18 months but it has changed the dynamics. So Luke, do you want to just talk us through um, where you were thinking when we started this conversation around just the difference in that dynamic today? Yeah, sure. So um, I, this conversation started off the back of like simplifying the employment relationship basically between company and employee and thinking about it in its simplest terms of what is that, what's that relationship built on? And I think we're all quite familiar with an employment contract, which in essence is I will give you X amount of time in exchange for X amount of salary. It's quite simple. Um, 
the realities of work are so much more complex than that today because I go to work for many more reasons than just my basic salary and my employer has a much greater expectation on me than just time. Um, there's great expectations for impact. There's great expectations um, to do many, many things beyond just turn up for work. So I find it really interesting when we look at like the undocumented contract between us. And I think the only way in which we can understand it really is the kind of psychological contract that exists between employer and employee. Um, so I wanted to kind of start with the question of why does it matter? Uh, Watson, we talked about this in the very first uh, kind of prep session for this of why do we need to think consciously about that relationship that we have um, with our people and why as an employee which we all are um, for our companies should we think consciously about the relationship that we have with our employer so I'm going to go wide open with a big question of why first I'm going to point it to you Watson and uh, hopefully that gets the conversation going great thanks Luke um why it's such a big question isn't it <clears throat> you know why why do we come to work every day and spend so much time you know investing energy our lives in creating something meaningful for for, for other colleagues and other clients and other customers depending on the industries we, we work in I, I think one of the thoughts i've had about the why question and why does it matter is you know it, the relationship between a colleague and the organization I think over the course of the last couple of years and maybe over, even longer than that has become much more like a consumer conversation or a consumer relationship. You know, why do we buy products from Amazon? And why do we download the app on our phones or and devices and then click to buy or whatever it may be? You know, why do you shop and buy a certain brand uh, or car or clothes or whatever it may be? Um, I don't think it's too dissimilar. And I think as, as uh, the world has evolved and as um, you know, the social landscape has evolved, the answer to the why do we have that relationship with the organization we work with, I think is becoming increasingly important. It's no different to a consumer mindset. And I think people look at organizations um, and assess whether they're the kind of company that they wanna put their name behind. And does the brand represent the kind of thing that they believe to be true in the world and that they wanna be associated with? And I think that organizations are increasingly becoming aware of that and that's why you start to see you know different techniques different tools you know being introduced into the landscape whether it be in talent or the way employee surveys have gone or potentially even the kind of focus on employee experience i know Ed, that you've got a lot of experience in that in that space that concept wasn't around uh you know five ten years ago but it's becoming increasingly important i think to help us answer the question of why the the sort of um uh, trying to be slightly difficult answer that question is it doesn't have to be a why you don't have to actually and actually I see quite a lot of organizations where I'm not sure they are convinced that they they do need to Luke but if you I guess building on Watson's point about consumer goods you know if, if someone spends a lot of money on a car right they're not going to run it into the ground in the first year um because they want to try and protect that that asset for as long as possible and have that car in really good nick same in a house like you'll try and look after it and, and make the right decisions to make sure that uh, you're protecting the value of the house and i think the best organizations increasingly um to be unproven as hypothesis will see that the uh, the only way to sort of retain their best talent and attract the best talent is when they genuinely have an interest in their employees and why they're coming to work and and try and create an environment where they thrive um 
I think that's quite an exciting development because I'm not sure that w would have been the case, say, when I started work 20 years ago, or I, I feel like that sort of uh, that psychological contract is quite unbalanced between uh, employer and employee. Um, but I see that as being uh, a much more level playing field uh, going forward. And I think it will only be the, the organisations that really get that, that really get the, the, the best people and the best talent. So it's, a, it's really, um, it's interesting because myself and Luke talk about this and have talked about it for quite a few months around that choice piece you talk about and how do, um, especially HR functions, offer that choice out to every employee because everybody's choice is so significantly different in the same ways when I'm looking at Amazon, I might buy something completely different to what you might buy. But that choice is really hard. And, and, and today organizations have very much done drop down, we believe what you have choice. And there's very much this groundswell, I think of employees saying, well, actually this is what I want as choice. So if you think about the employees wanting those sorts of things as choice, what sort of things are you doing, Ed, I guess, in your organization that's that's helping that 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 from an employee perspective and also candidates coming into your organization? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the big one, which is almost like the topic of the day, which is around the sort of working environment and the options around like where people work. Um, and we decided last year to go uh, live with our new balance policy, which allowed people to work away from the office up to 80% of their time. Uh, frustratingly, we haven't been able to implement it because we haven't seen a large scale return to offices since uh, uh, since we launched it in September. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things. And you know, it's something that a lot of organizations are talking about right at the moment. You see barely go, a day goes past without seeing some sort of headline about what, what company is doing. Um, and it's something we had to think like really long and hard about. We spent a lot of time speaking to colleagues and understanding what they wanted um, and needed. Um, you know, we ran what we called the big conversation last year and, and what came out of that was clearly like a lot of companies that you know a significant majority of people like the the additional flexibility of spending time away from the office but there was a very significant minority of people that wanted to return to the office as well it was about sort of 20 25 percent and i think um you have to be very careful in a lot of what you do that you don't always just listen to the majority because um you know you wouldn't ignore one of your big offices that had a thousand people in so why would you do the same when when there's a survey um, and that's not easy because, you know, we, you launch it and then there's some people saying, well, that doesn't work for me because I want to be full time in the office and other people want to see more uh, 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 more time away from uh, home as well. So I think um, the lesson from that, and that's just one of the examples of things we're doing, is that I think sometimes also people get really wrapped up in trying to come up with the perfect solution. First of all, like this is our best estimate, if you like, around the perfect solution for us at the moment in time. You know, in two years' time, will that look and feel differently? Uh, yes, I'm sure it will. And will there be more layers to it? Then I'm sure that I'm sure it will. Um, start with technology, right? Isn't it that you know, a lot of the best tech now starts off with quite a basic point, and then you build layers on top of that. And I'm sure that's what you'll see in the work environment going going forward. So that's that's just an easy first example. It's. Um, so a question for you guys, which is we talked quite a bit about like the consumerization of work almost, which um, provides in many respects. If I look at Amazon, I think of Amazon as a single brand with near infinite choice. And yeah. organizations are at the risk of providing infinite choice without clarity of the overarching or unifying value promise. 
So you go to Amazon because you expect really speedy delivery. You expect um, a high standard of kind of customer service. If something goes wrong, you get a refund immediately, et cetera. Um, how should people be thinking about that top level in terms of the value promise and how some of these things are actually delivered such that the choice is really clear what's made? Because we used to rely quite a lot on values, but values mean quite a, quite a different thing to that brand interaction and engagement that we would expect that might drive many of these initiatives. So I guess what's maybe one for you the, around the how now rather than the, the why, um, but particularly relating to that value promise of what an employee should expect from their time. Yeah, thanks Luke. It's a really, it's a really good question. And from, from my perspective, the way I think about it is, you know, why not ask your people? what is the value promise that they think that, that already exists in your organization? And, uh, you know, it really reminds me of a time, you know, what, what we had, had done previously in Standard Chartered when we did some work around culture and purpose was we, we established that the purpose of the organization was really, really clear. But the important question to answer was, so what? And rather than having a group of executives or a group of MTs, uh, management team members sitting in a room deciding what the values need to be for an organization, we asked all of our colleagues, we asked all sort of 70, 80,000 people uh, what they thought were the really important behaviors to be part of, of the organization. And those behaviors become the standard that you expect. It's what you buy when you join. It's what you hold leaders accountable for in the way that they make decisions. And it's what you measure and uh, continue to measure over time to demonstrate that you're creating the right kind of culture to deliver that value promise for your clients. You know, how can an organization create value for its clients if it's not clear on the value promise for its people. I think everything starts, and that's, again, I used to echo the point around employee experience. I think that's where you have the movement around if you get it right for your people, you know, the, the profits and the purpose will come for your clients. So I think, I think there's definitely something about measurement. There's something about really listening. And I think I heard Ed, you know, talk a lot about that. Um, you know, we think about the move to hybrid working. You know, organizations, I think, that have really effective listening strategies um, I, I think are really well placed to start to leverage that data to answer some of these big, quite sort of philosophical questions about why and, and how you create that kind of relationship with colleagues. And, and, and ultimately, I think, to deliver that contract that you described of, of psychological safety. How easy has it been, Watson, to get your leadership to hear? Because there's one thing about getting your organisation to talk and say how they would like it or how they feel or or what that, that value base should look like. There's another element, which is, is the leadership team ready to hear that that's what you want to do is going forward? How, how's it been in Standard Charter Bank? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ever easy to have leadership teams hear messages from colleagues at, you know, at wide scale. I think the power is in the data. Yeah. Um, you know, often I, I think that having a really uh, strong measurement approach that's very objective makes that conversation far more powerful. Then it becomes not about a bunch of HR experts or HR practitioners telling leaders what to do or asking leaders to do something differently. It's actually their teams, their people, um, you know, that are impacted by the data. So I, I think, you know, it's not easy for any, for any stretch of the imagination. I, I mean, I think having the data is, is a really good start. One example that, that really sprung to mind for me was, um, when we have, we've been experimenting with the idea of creating a, a gig economy where colleagues can participate in short-term project-based experiences su supported by some, some technology. And 
you know, the perception from leaders was that people don't have time. We don't have time to participate in discretionary projects. Perhaps that's true, that, that hypothesis, we needed to test that hypothesis. What we found though was when we piloted it, people more junior in the organization really, really loved it. There was so much more uh, engagement in the platform, engagement in the concept uh, at you know, the mid to junior levels of the organization than there was at the top. So we used that data to play that back, play the success stories back and the conversation shifted. And it starts to become much more about what colleagues want to get out of their relationship with the organization than what leaders think they might want. I think it's a real balance of the two. I had a question for you, if I may, which is um, if we stick on this thread of like relational dynamics and brand and consumerization of work, um, consumer choice is a really interesting one. And people tend to make choices based on um, differentiation. How, how different can companies really get? And I guess what I mean by that is there's a lot of basics around the relationship with work. You want to get paid a salary and you want it to be convenient and blah, blah, blah. But the, the, those that really seem to win are those that in, in the consumer world have a really kind of like strong opinion and belief set around what this should be relating to. How different can established organizations really be? Yeah, I think they can be quite different. Right. So you get, you know, carrying on the example of consumer brands, right? You have companies um, dealing with customers in unbelievably competitive marketplaces that have unbelievably loyal customers. And you're like, well, is the product that different, actually? But yet the loyalty is so, so high. So um, and in a lot of those examples, there's a good reason why there is. And so, I, yeah, I absolutely think you can with employees right and I think a lot of the best teams whether it be you know sports team or company whatever just execute simple things really really well and I think sort of building on something that Watson was talking about um, the simple thing is speak to people find out what their views are and then look to see whether you're doing the right things and that might sometimes mean that you change the way you do things or it might be sometimes you say, well, actually, we can't do that thing that you've asked for. And these are the reasons why. And if you are quite happy to have that conversation with people and explain, um, then people respect it. There's many times where we've said to people, no, unfortunately, the answer is this. Or particularly, yeah, we're going through a major deal at the moment with a lot of uncertainty. But we can't always give the answers that people have questions to. But they respect the sort of honesty in that. And I think... That's really the very simple model. If you execute that right, you will constantly improve and constantly be more ahead of the pack than the majority of other companies. Um, and that sort of middle ground of companies will constantly be seeking to sort of copy and will only ever be that time lag behind, whether that be a few months or a year or, or two years behind the very best. And a follow on question, if I may, um, which is experience is... is um, brand experience is felt typically in what you what you look like what you say and what you do and organizations have got really good at managing what they look like um, from a employer brand perspective and your office is a wonderful example that I always enjoy coming to with the hedgerows to jump over in the middle well not jump over uh, <laughs> but separate the offices sure jump over might be after a few drinks at a Christmas party or something it would be quite fun but never mind um, what you say in internal comms is um, 
uh, we've got really good at communicating internally. And I know you guys are, are very good at that. But w- the what we do bit, that feels like the really tough bit. Because it's, it's in each of those interactions that you have with your boss or with a leader in the company. How, how do you create both consistency in that do element, along with real personality and difference? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty difficult question because it's a huge, uh, huge question. I think. But the good thing is, Ed, if you can answer that, we've we've made it. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Say, right? drop the mic and just walk off. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're sorted, and you've answered all of our our problems. <laughs> I mean, like, one of the words that came to my mind when you asked that is this sort of just having that continuous improvement mindset, that accepting that you won't get all of that right, um, and but you just need to constantly aspire to 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 do it better. Um, and there's no doubt some of that is more difficult when you work in a a very large organization um I always use the example of one of my friends who owns his own small building company he finds it very easy to manage his people because he un- understands all of them individually and is able to completely tailor how he speaks to them uh, what he does for them to really suit their personal life and it's almost like how can you replicate that when you have say 10,000 20,000 30,000 um uh, people and I think you know part of that is around the frameworks that you put in place but a lot of it's also then about getting your recruitment right. And I think it's something that uh, Watson was talking about earlier on. If you're really clear about what your values are, but the organisation genuinely lives those on a day-to-day basis, then the people that you bring into the organisation will be the right fit for that um, and that they will hopefully apply their own sort of special mix of leadership and you know lead teams in their own way. So you, you achieve that sort of consistency through some of the frameworks that you put in place. You trust your leaders that they're the right people to lead their teams, lead the departments, whatever it might be, uh, and to do it in their their own way and to suit the the different roles that you might have in an organisation because they are very different. You know the difference between you know compliance function versus a, a retail shop versus a marketing function. You know they're very very different. So you need to have a a, a trust in people that they will do that in the right way um, and empower them to do that whilst also trying to trying your best to support them with the, the tools and frameworks that they they need to sort of help provide that element of consistency. Working in a highly interesting environment is crucial. Do you give them, do you empower your leaders to, to enable them to have that choice? Yeah, we try to, right? It would be interesting. You know, you could have like a thousand of our leaders. We've got a thousand people leaders. Um, and some of them probably say that they're they're not being, being frank, but we certainly try to. Um, yeah. And certainly something we've got like a lot better at. Um, uh, and I think culturally we're in a very different place now to when I joined uh, five years ago. But I mean, that's the, the crucial thing. I mean, all of us would know when you feel, whether it's with a friendship group or a family group or a work group, when you feel highly trusted, that's when you feel like you can kind of be yourself and being able to be yourself is is really liberating. Um, I've certainly been in environments where I felt the need to act to be a certain different way. And that's, it's really draining on a day-to-day basis when, um, when, when you're having to do that. So yeah, I'd like to think we do, Terry. We certainly put a lot of effort into doing that. Um, and hopefully the majority of our people and our leaders would feel that. But I'm, I'm sure some don't. Yeah, it's a fact of life, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I can see Watson nodding, even though our listeners can't see him nodding. 
watch. <laughs> I was nodding. I was nodding, Terry. Thank you. I, I think, I mean, I think Luke, you said, you know, how do you do that in, oh, maybe it was Ed, I can't remember exactly who said it, the, the piece around large or smaller organisations. Um, how do you do these things in big, global, complex corporates? And I, <clears throat> I wonder as well whether, you know, there's a real need to focus on the, the kind of moments that make a difference in an employee's experience with, within the organisation and recognise that you know, capacity, time and resources are often limited. And, and, you know, where do you choose to focus on an organization to translate that kind of why into a lived experience of the how at a moment that really, really matters for that colleague? You know, whether it's how a promotion decision gets made or communicated or, uh, uh, you know, returning from um, parental leave uh, or, you know, uh, you know, dealing with a kind of family issue or, or, or kind of long-term sickness with, with someone that you care about, or maybe even in COVID, you know, how has the organization dealt with the different pressures that individuals in various markets have been put through at various times over the last couple of years, juggling work and home and school and, you know, other commitments outside of the workplace. So I think that piece around focus is, is very important and recognizing that, you know, there won't always be an experience that is exactly how the organization may have intended it to. But how do we put in, uh, you know, practices and, and tools that enable that feedback to then come back to the right people, whether it's to leaders or whether it's to, you know, other colleagues on the ground? Um, I think that's an important thing to consider as well. And how much are, um, I'm going to say, the great thing about HR is we have a lot of systems and processes and tools and we have a lot of data, right? And what's new, you've already talked about going out and trying to find information and putting data and measures back on, on the organization. How, how much of having the systems in place, having the way that people can connect and the way that Luke talked about from a communication perspective, how, uh, how much are they important to you as organizations? Do you have collaboration tools? Do you need collaboration tools? Talk me through, I guess, an infrastructure and how, how that helps you or doesn't help you. I think it's hugely important. Um, and I think I'm a big believer uh, you know, that if we get it right at the front end of the employee experience, it, it makes the experience um, easier further down the line. So, you know, when, when I talked about the work we did to define what really matters for our organisation, we call them value behaviours rather than values to create more uh, accessibility as a behaviour rather than saying, you know, you don't meet value X or you don't meet value Y. We, we found that calling it a behaviour was a, a much more um, safer way to encourage people to change their behaviour. You know, we introduced um, a psychometric test in our hiring, into our hiring process. Every external hire, before they see any internal colleague to go to an interview, completes a psychometric test based on those value behaviours. And if they don't meet the standard, they don't go through. Full stop. So I think, you know, really, uh, and that was a little bit of an experiment that we did. Uh, you know, my organisation has not, not had that uh, scalable process. Uh, uh, tool available um, you know before it's now live in in you know greater than 50 markets in the last 18 months we've had over 50,000 candidates go through and a, a fairly good percentage of people are not going through because they don't meet the standard and we've held that line really really strongly of course there'll be times where we need to review um, the position but I, I think that that is also a proof point of you know organizations really putting their money where their mouth is for want of a better term on the importance of values and value behaviors do you hire the right people? Do you promote the right people? Uh, and how do decisions get made? Perhaps Ed, you've got some some uh, you know similar experiences uh, that you can share. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
not to make it too light-hearted actually funny enough when you were talking um there watson i mean it's a long time since i've been single but you know go back to the days when i was single what you yeah you, everyone's had that experience where maybe on the fourth or fifth date you know there's been a conversation and you just hear that one comment or maybe the political view and you're like oh no 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 this can't um, <laughs> This can't continue and ideally you want to flush that out as soon as as soon as possible so you maybe haven't spent you know three days worth of meals but to to find out uh, uh what could be a huge error and i think it's the same with um organizations and colleagues joining right the the, the sooner both sides can almost see if there is an ick factor uh, at play the better and i guess that's uh, exactly what watson's talking about there it's trying to sort of uh, increase the chances of finding that out um uh, earlier i think you know once people, probably a better answer to one of the questions earlier on, now I've had a chance to think about it, is I think once people are in the organisation, the the best way of creating those experiences that we're talking about is, I think, two things. So if you have leaders that care, um, and if you have leaders that are prepared to uh, accept and hear that they don't necessarily get things right, or there might be a better way of doing things, I think if you have those two things at place, then you, you'll always do really, really good things as an organisation. If leaders don't care and they're sort of trying to find a financial reason for doing things, that will always uh, massively inhibit what you're trying to do or, or the experience that that people get. Um, similarly, if they're not prepared to listen to a different way of doing things, um, and that makes things pretty difficult. And I know, you know, I remember back almost a year to the day since we were, since I was first, you know, sat virtually in front of the executive team talking about this potential approach of balance and had the almost the, the first initial blank sheet of paper with the sort of concept ideas. And I was pretty nervous before then. I don't think it speaks badly of them at all, but I felt like out of 10 that you had three that were likely to be very strong advocates, four that were probably in the middle and, and three that I felt were likely to be pretty strong detractors of it. What I will say without naming any names, the three detractors, and again, linking something that Watson said about data, although I knew emotionally they didn't like the idea of the, you know, significantly increased flexibility, they were able to see the evidence in terms of data points, the comments that we'd had, the, the rationale behind what we were putting in place. And in the end, what I thought could be quite a difficult meeting was actually quite an easy meeting um, and those detractors were happy to go do you know what it doesn't it feels quite strange for me and quite difficult for me but I'm you know I'm really happy to to, to go with this so apologies but that was a bit of a long-winded answer to that I'm not even sure whether no I'm not at all but but I'm now I'm now intrigued to ask you more about your dating life now oh, but um I haven't been single for a while I'd hate to go but but the the bit you make I think the bit that COVID has done for us is allowed those people that might have been detractors to just think slightly differently and then look at the information and therefore change and work work forward and I think that's the the groundswell we're going to have now have it's like all those people that Watson talks about bringing into the organization the groundswell of people are going to come in and ask for that choice they're going to come in and ask for that flexibility and those organizations that shift and move are going to be the ones that, that are more pro more productive and more profitable at the end of it because they're on, on it quicker. I mean, if you, you go back to, um, you know, pre-COVID, pre productivity was the thing that people said you needed to be in the office to do. And I think what COVID's managed to prove is actually productivity can work without it necessarily being in the office. And I think it's now taken advantage of that as a HR function and 
really trying to get some of that exciting new ways of working and new ways of thinking and get them to be a bit more creative as, the, as they go through. So if you were, if you were to look at creativity, Watson, what, what would you say that for you that, that comes out the most for you in started chan, um, started standard chartered bank? That was easy for me to say. <laughs> I, I think I'm just pausing and thinking, uh, Terry, as you, <laughs> as, as you asked the question. Um, I, I think as well, I'm going to touch on the productivity point and then come to the creativity, uh, if that's okay. I, I think it's yeah. also important you know i was going to say post covid but it's not really post covid is it because there's so many markets in the world that are still really struggling um in the current era we're in uh i i think you know we talk about people having choice we talk about having the right tools and collaboration technologies we talk about new ways of working i i do often wonder if there's a bigger role to play in creating new ways of thinking because to be an effective leader in a hybrid working environment where you have your people on Zooms or Skypes or Teams or you know, whatever the insert um, you know, collaboration technology of choice here, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different thought process to be inclusive, to draw in opinions of everybody and not you know, rely on your traditional ways of working. So I think that, that that's a learning, it's a skill, it's a learning process that I think a lot of individuals, many thousands of individuals across the world are going through um, at the moment. And I think that, you know, my own experience has been we haven't, we haven't got it right yet in terms of, you know, how do we really maximize the creativity? You know, we, we, ran, a, we ran an innovation campaign, uh, you know, during our kind of process of creating our hybrid working approach called the water, the water Cooler Challenge. And there's a lot of talk in my organization at the moment about how do you replicate the water cooler conversation or the coffee queue conversation or the lift conversation? And, I, you know, we don't know yet. We've got lots of great ideas about <clears throat> how we might manage it. You know, we've got some great technology now that we're starting to, you know, work out how to use better and more effectively. But I don't think we have an answer about how do you recreate the human to human three dimension, um, you know, interaction. I think that my own view, um, you know, over the last, uh, I haven't been in the office since uh, February, 2020. So it's been a long time since I've been in, in an office environment is we have to, find a way to be more creative virtually. It's a skill. We've got to practice. We've got to learn from each other. And you know, some of the people I lead in the team are from Africa or from China or from the UK, each has different needs and gets better, better things out of them in terms of creativity. So I think that, um, I think the honest answer is I don't know yet, Terry. <laughs> I think we're all working it out. Um, and I, I think the point Ed made earlier around, you know, although in a small business context, getting to know your people starts there. It's not there for the organisation. Watson, an, an interesting thought. Is, is, is creativity an individual like obligation or is it a process though? Because my, my path to leadership was in sales, which was basically obsessed, or, uh, obsessed around customer need. And normally you'll find out whether there's an answer there or not. Now I run a product company and the, the, the kind of, the central point of a product company is, is built around like user-centered design and understand the individual and, and tackle problems for people, basically. And for me, it, it kind of feels like the, the educational system is one of others and, and how you then deal with it yourself. Um, and there's mostly processes or systems that kind of, you can put stuff into the function box and it spits out the other side. Um, 
what the answers should be. And most of it comes from listening, leading with empathy and building understanding. The, the question that I kind of have in my mind is, do you have to have all of the answers at the top? Or if not, how do you create many, many more processes that go beyond just the employee engagement survey as your kind of primary listening tool? Shall I start, Ed? No doubt you'll have some thoughts on this one. I think you, when we were talking a little bit about this in the, in the prep work. Um, no, I don't think you need all the answers at the top. Uh, I think is a short answer. I think that the answers exist in the organization with the you know, diversity of thought, the diversity of culture, uh, the diversity of experiences that might exist within the organization. I, I think that it's important to also remind ourselves what is creativity for? Creativity sometimes can be for innovation. Sometimes creativity can be, um, you know, to be a release from a stressful experience that, that a team is having together. And, and that piece around, you know, you mentioned user-centered design. I think there's lots of techniques and tools and practices out there, certainly some that we're playing with, um, you know, in, in Standard Chartered to make it easier to be, to, to be creative. But I don't believe creativity is a process. Uh, I also don't believe it's an obligation. I think that creativity uh, is, is an outcome of a way of thinking that often is an accumulation of different perspectives put together um, in, in a conversation. And I think in the kind of COVID era, era, we're finding that to be more challenging. So we're having to work in different ways to do that virtually, using different tools or techniques or processes to facilitate that. Um, that would be my thoughts. Look, it's quite a big, quite a, quite a big question, Ed. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd agree with all of that. And I think keeping on sort of quite consistent thread, uh, first thing is around employee voice. And it is, in a lot of ways, it's really embarrassing how slow organisations have been or how slow we have all been to adapt how we uh, talk and listen to employees to be the same way as we talk and listen to consumers. Like, I mean, how long is it since organisations have only launched a a customer survey once a year or whatever to find out what, what what customers think of their products yet you still see a lot of organizations like less so now but still only doing a, a a once a year engagement survey i think then you know once you sort of get that constant stream of feedback and understanding of where sentiment is processes are important um but i guess to what watson was saying the process on its own won't create the right result and certainly won't create or won't enable creativity um you know a really good example for hr is performance management right and how much discussion has there been over the last 20 years about the right performance management processes and ultimately they all fall down unless you have the right people having the right types of conversations that really buy into it and don't see whatever the process is that an organization has as a piece of admin to do um and when they do that that will never work and then i think the third part on top of that then so if you have if you listen to employees you don't have the right processes in place it's just to enable people or to try and create an environment where people feel super included like if people feel really included and really respected of who they are then they will bring the most creativity they can bring to the, to the role in some cases that might not actually be enough and, and that's a bit about having hired the right person in the first place but you're only I know I'm only at my best and I'm and you have all those like you know thought explosions where you've got all these great ideas when you're feeling super motivated super energized um 
really feel like you're a part of the team and where you're trying to go. Um, and, you know, if you do feel that way, it's a really empowering environment to be in. But, you know, if you feel the other way, then you're not going to bring creativity to work. Um, so I kind of see those three steps as the key enablers to you know, enabling creativity. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's really, it's really good to kind of like hear you guys. Sometimes these things can be really appear complex and really you can yeah. just like, um, it doesn't have to be all that complicated in the way in which you've both described it, which is great. Um, a, a linked question, which is one of the things that I think about quite often is on the other side of the relationship. So we can often speak to um, HR or leadership teams and look at the workplace, but how often do we kind of look at the worker and like what the employee expectations are? And you talk about performance management, but it is more than time these days. Like we are asking people to sign up in their employment contract for more than 35 or 45 or whatever many hours it is per week. I'd love to get your views on, I guess, part A to the question is what could we and should we reasonably expect from the employee or worker and then on the other side of the relationship uh, and the employer is how far does it go how far should you be expecting to enrich that individual's life in some way shape or form because I have seen a whole host of things coming into the employee experience zone now where I do kind of question is that really on the employer to get that right so part a part b Someone yeah, can pick I'll, first. Go on, Ed. Yeah, no, I'll, st I'll start off. I'm not sure whether I'm going to come up with a very good answer, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll kind of speak and hopefully it will evolve into something of interest. I think if I address part B, first of all, I do think that it depends on the organisation. It doesn't have to be the right thing. So, you know, you, you always have more paternalistic organisations and less paternalistic ones. Um, and again, you might realise by now, I'm a big fan of using sporting analogies. There are, there are all kinds of sporting organizations are very successful in different ways and they'll have different cultures and different ways of doing things and you just don't have to have the same attitude um, across all different organizations in order to be successful I guess what you do need to do is just be really clear about that and I think you know one of the things that makes it really difficult is if you have for example and there are 20 leaders and three of them think you should be super paternalistic and three at the other end and you've got everything in the middle, then that, that's, you're going to become really unclear about what you should be providing. And some of your policies or uh, things you offer to employees will be quite paternalistic and others not. And it will just be this like horrible like mesh, right? Um, so I think th that will always evolve over time, but I think it's it, it just about being clear about what your purpose is as an organization. It's probably an easy answer to give, but I do think it's, it, it's really important. I think then going to the first part of the question about what you can be reasonably expect of um, employees, I think you can ask for a lot, right? But it's just about, um, and again, again, linking back to what Watson said earlier on, it's about articulating that really soon. Um, if you're very articulate about what you expect of people as they come into the organisation, you're really clear about that. Um, then you know they have then the choice about uh, is your organisation one that they want to join, and if it is, then you know they they can have no recourse almost if once they join, what they see and what they experience is exactly what they've what you've talked about. Where the difficulty comes is when that the the, the reality once you hit on day one is completely different from the organisation that um, yeah you thought you were joining um, uh, throughout the uh, interview process. But I think you know 
paternalistic often, paternalism is often like seen as a bit of a dirty word, right? But you can you can you can look after people um, and take care of them, and but then expect them to work really hard um, and be quite demanding of them in terms of the outputs they bring. Um, it's just being about trying to be trying your best to be really clear about what that is. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting, I think, to think about the role of the organisation. Um, a little bit more like a platform rather than a destination and you know sometimes I think in the traditional way of thinking organizations have been seen you know the, the kind of place to go you have your career there and that's it you know I think there's there's a lot of you know movement towards uh, you know moving more fluidly across different organizations and building skills and experiences that meet the sort of portfolio that individuals are looking for so I, I do wonder whether there's a role we can play to think differently about the organization as being a platform for success for the individual, whatever that looks like. It's not for us to say to an individual what you know they do or want in the future, but for their for them in their career. I think it's for us as organ as organizations and particularly as sort of HR leaders to create platforms that enable people to kind of fulfill the potential that they believe to be true for themselves. And sometimes it's about helping the individual see beyond what they believe to be true, you know, using different types of tools, different types of techniques, and making it available in a, in a kind of real-time, flexible kind of way. I, I, for me, that that you know that's a really important part of that's part B. Like, you know, how far does it go? I think it's not for the organisation to tell necessarily quite so much. I think it's about enabling and empowering through a platform of support. Um, to help the person be the best they can be. And sometimes that will mean they choose to opt out of the organization. And I think we need to make, we need to do more to make that okay um, yeah. in situations where, you know, the individual does want to opt out or they're not at their best for whatever reason. And the organization can't help them be their best. The fit might be right or the role might not be right for them, whatever it may be. But, you know, the key point for me is around a you know, platform for people to be successful. It is, it is really interesting, isn't it? So I think we've sort of almost circled back to the choice and the, the, the and I love that. I love that way of thinking about it as actually how do we, how do we in HR? So if there's a takeaway, I guess, for everybody on the, um, who listens to this podcast, it's like, how can we play the role in exactly the way you've just talked about in creating that platform for people to be able to step, learn, develop, grow into their own next platform, whatever that might be. Um, and that we use the organisations as being that rather than them being hierarchical down around how they believe an employee should be be operating within their within their business. I think there was a couple of couple of key points I wanted to just pull out before I say thank you very much. Um, I think there was one around we don't have to have all the answers at the top, and I think for a long time we've always given ourselves a bit of a challenge to make sure we always do have the answers. And I think if anything's shown us in the last eighteen months, we can actually not have the answers, and we can try things and play things and be creative and and work out how we do that. So that would be one of the takeaways. Um, and I think the other one was a need to listen. I think now more so, so than ever in the in the fact that employees and workers and people coming in as candidates into our organizations are looking for what can that organization bring me? What are the behaviors that Watson talked about within that organization? Can I be successful and respected within that organization? And if I can be respected and um, and empowered in that organization how can you tell me that from my beginning of my journey and, and how do I take that on so I think there's a little bit around us really starting to really listen to the people on the ground and helping them be the co-creators of things we're doing not necessarily creating from the top and top and driving down 
I'd like to say a really big thank you to Watson, Ed and Luke for um, uh, a great another podcast. Um, and if any of you I think of any other topics you'd also like to do, we can keep them going and, uh, and bring them in. If you um, haven't had too many drop, mic drops from us today, um, from uh, we, we've learned a lot about Ed. We've, maybe we'll do a podcast learning a little bit more about Ed. Um, but, but for now, we'll um, call it a day on that. And just thank you very much, Watson, Luke and Ed for joining us. Thanks. Very much, very much. It's great to be with you both. Thanks for listening to SHL's CHRO Chat Podcast. To learn more about how SHL helps companies leverage their greatest asset, their people, please visit shl.com. <laughs>